Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hokuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, as usual, and it is uh, Thursday, the 15th of February. So uh, the episode that came out last week, you'll have heard that we spoke to Vedi Hadiz about Indonesia's history, its social formation, and look forward to the election, which uh, just happened yesterday. So now this is going to be the second episode we do on Indonesia and its elections. You might ask yourself why, but uh, as the title of this episode has it, and the previous one too, it's the biggest country that no one actually really talks about. It's the world's fourth largest country by population. It's in the top 10 economies by purchasing power parity. Uh, And then yesterday, Indonesia went to the polls on the 14th of February, and this is the world's third largest democracy. And it stages what is, I think, the world's biggest single day general election. And it's also a very young country. Young people made up the majority of voters, 55% of them aged between 17 and 40. Okay, so who was the winner? Well, as you heard uh, on last week's podcast, it was already pretty clear what the outcome would be. Uh, It was Prabowo Subianto, um, excuse me for the pronunciation. Um, So what's been the response to this? I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, Winter is coming, exclaimed the Guardian uh, in response never want to miss an opportunity for some cheap pop culture reference, which is completely irrelevant to the place, but whatever, you know, there we go. Uh, CNN said, uh, ex-army strongman leader claims victory. The BBC said, what can Indonesia expect from its new strongman leader? So it's kind of a clear theme there. Um, and as one kind of popular tweet had it, uh, as expected, Prabowo is winning. Welcome to Indonesia's dark age. Oh, and fuck Jokowi. Um, so um, that there's a lot of stuff to be explained there. Um, and uh, I'm very happy to have someone who will be able to explain to us in depth what exactly is going on in Indonesia um, and place it in its historical context. Indeed, a country which seems to be keen on erasing its own historical context. But we're going to come on to that. Uh, Michael Van, uh, delighted to have you. Uh, for those of you who don't know him, he's a professor of history at Sacramento State University and the author of The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, Empire, Disease, and Modernity in French Colonial Vietnam, and that came out back in 2019. Uh, Mike, welcome. Hey, thank you. I'm I'm delighted to be here. I've been a been a fan of you guys for a while, and um, also got to have you guys on the New Books Network uh, a few years yeah. ago, and that was a fun chat. No, it's so it's a um, very belated uh, return invite, I think. Here, um, <laughs> so like to get to get stuck into it. I'm well. You 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 mentioned you were doing some um, like grieving drinking, or I'm not sure exactly what you called it in response to <laughs> Indonesia's election results. So um, let's let's start with the emotional aspect. Why, why what what prompted that? Yeah, I was uh, self medicating some emotional trauma at the election results. Um, you know, those, those of us who are Indonesia watchers and Indonesia lovers, I mean, uh, most Indonesians are just totally captivated by the place for for all the cliche reasons, which we won't go into, but <laughs> there's a fantastic list of things. Well, no, never, go, go into the, the cliche reasons. Never, Sorry. It's, well, it's, 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 I think it's, it's worth it because people don't, aren't familiar yeah. with... Yeah. 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 Well, um, I mean, it's stunningly gorgeous. And, and, and by the way, you guys nailed it with the title of the last episode. It, it is the largest country in the world that nobody talks about. And as someone who's been... Uh, working on Indonesia um, since I was an undergraduate, actually. And it was uh, my discovery of Indonesia is why I became a historian uh, and wanted wanted to become a historian in high school because mm. it's this incredible place. I mean, so, you know, all all the cliches about just the incredible beauty in the of natural beauty of the place, the incredible cultural diversity, well over 350 different languages, not dialects, but languages. 
everyone speaks Bahasa Indonesia as a, as a lingua franca, but that's for most people not a language that they speak at home. They speak Javanese or uh, Bahasa Madura or Balinese or what have you. Um, the, the the natural beauty, the diversity of culture, the, um, the, the fascinating history. I mean, that's what got me into it was uh, actually as a high schooler seeing uh, the year of living dangerously. And as a 16 year old, I'm like, what is this place? I want to learn more about this. Mm. Um, so there's just so many draws um, and it's, you know, just incredible, but there's also these these great cliches that we're not supposed to talk about, <laughs> like the year of living dangerously, and never mention shadow puppets as a metaphor. <laughs> Don't mention volcanoes, um, and uh, you know journalists always have these stock phrases. Like you'll always see, uh, you know, they'll reference, uh, say, Prabowo, the uh, the president elect, and uh, the uh, journalists will say, well, Indi- many Indonesians go by one name, and which is quite common. Um, but anyway, it's um. It, it's just, I think, one of the most fascinating places and also so politically important over the course of the 20th century and economically important um, throughout several uh, centuries of history. Um, I would argue the origins of capitalism lie in the Dutch East India Company and the spice trade. And that's what the Dutch were trying to get to, those uh, those spices. And that created the the need for um, stock exchanges and and all the, the financial mechanisms that we know today. So anyway, I'm, I'm a big promoter of, uh, of Indonesia and, and the study thereof. No, great. I mean, and I think, um, it's worth, yeah, as I say, it's worth underlining that just because, um, it does get kind of strangely brushed aside in, in kind of global pictures of, of, of everywhere. Right. And many smaller countries have a much larger, more important profile than Indonesia does. So I've always been curious as to why that is and kind of taken a while to get around to actually doing an episode um or several episodes on 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 the country but um anyway yeah, i figured yeah. we take well, the opportunity I, I think part of that may also be uh they they weren't colonized by the right country to get on the map you know the, <laughs> the netherlands doesn't quite have the same footprint in the academy um many of the, uh, mm. the for historians the archives are going to be in dutch and that uh, so much post-colonial research follows the old colonial flags. You have to learn French to do Vietnamese yeah, history yeah. or a good chunk of Africa. And so that's kind of marginalized. There has not been a major um, Indonesian diaspora as with, um, say, the Philippines or Vietnam, uh, what have you. Um, and also, I think that and something I think we're going to talk about, I think that the, the Suharto regime was very good at sort of pulling Indonesia away from the spotlight after it had been in the spotlight mm. under uh, the nationalist uh, president uh, and populist president, Sukarno. I want to kind of start by the most recent events. So start with the election itself. Uh, so Prabowo, um, as you pointed out to me that, you know, he's ran in 2014 and 2019 again. And in those campaign videos, he comes off as well, a military authoritarian as he is. Um, and in his most recent kind of campaign videos and, and the per- persona he's brought, tried to bring to the campaign, he's like this kind of cuddly, maybe a bit populist grandpa. So um, how has he how has he affected this and who is he really? Yeah, th- this is one of the more amazing um, political reinventions uh, of, of a candidate. I mean, so I, I was looking at old campaign footage from 2014, and he's literally a man on horseback. Um, I mean, he's, he, he was a, you know, a, a decorated officer and, and, um, looking at some younger, uh, photos of him, I mean, was, was 
fit the part. I mean, he's, he's now sort of chunky as, as, as many of us get, as we get older. Um, <laughs> but, um, he was, you know, like, you know, sort of like, uh, Donald Trump's uh, vision of what a, a general should look like, you know, this strong, powerful guy. And, right. and so in these campaigns in 2014, and I think, he, I think he brought the horses back in 2019, but he he's literally a man on horseback with um, some sort of fascist looking um, uh, imagery. And there was even a campaign video that came out in 2014 that is just absolutely appalling. And I urge all the listeners to, to Google it. Uh, Proboo, uh, 2014 campaign video where um, they had a, a handful of um, Indonesian uh, pop stars um, singing to the uh, the music from We, we Will Rock You, but singing uh, Prabowo Hatta, uh, that his name and his um, vice presidential running mate's name. And it's, it is Nazi imagery. One of, one of the pop stars um, has a, an SS style uniform on. And so that's, that's the guy that we have been thinking of in terms of Probovo for for you know decades now. And this is this is this is in his 21st century career, right? I mean his 20th century career is involves um uh a, an extensive military resume which we we can talk about. And now this reinvention for this campaign and it started about a year ago and he is presented literally as this cuddly grandpa Indonesians are using the slang word gamoy uh, for it literally means cuddly. Like, like I think the connotations are like, it's so cute. You just want to squeeze his little cheeks. Right. And he's been appearing not on horseback, but at these, um, these rallies that are like music parties with like Dongdu, which is this uh, Dongdu. It's this like popular um, kind of folk pop music. It's a little risque. It's got some, um, Indian Ocean rhythms. Um, I don't know quite how to describe it, um, but he'd be, be dancing and dancing in a really weird, awkward manner. Uh, n- not as awkward as Donald Trump's uh, dance where he's doing the things with the ghosts in his hands, but um, but this sort of old grandpa dance where he's like kind of doing like Javanese kind of like folk dance moves and not in uniform, in a casual shirt and real man of the people. And this took off on um, Instagram and especially TikTok and won over this like key voting demographic that you mentioned, um, This the stats on how many Indonesian voters are below 30 years of age. And he won them over. And it's just, it's mind-blowing. I think that folks of my generation, I mean, I'm in my mid-50s, and um, uh, who remember the 20th century and... Um, so folks in the fifties and forties are are much more nervous about this guy because they remember previous elections, um, and now he's this cuddly grandpa. And then you know he so he lost to he lost to um, the current president Jokowi twice when they were both running for president in twenty fourteen, and then again in twenty nineteen. And when he lost in twenty nineteen, he refused to concede, and he had his thugs uh, Preman. Um, uh, Preman is um, uh, a gangster. If you've seen the act of killing, the jo- the incredible Josh and Oppenheimer film, it's the the Premons are the guys that go out and do the killing, and 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 he profiles the Premon who are these like re- they're racketeers who have political links um, in uh, in Indonesian society. Anyway, he, he unleashed Premons in the capital, and there were deadly riots for a couple of days. Um, but now we've got this cuddly guy. 
that is, is and then in the 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 image they're they're using is is again not Proboa on horseback, but AI generated um, uh, cartoons of him looking like you look, just looking so gamoy. You just want to pinch his little cheeks. <laughs> I mean, it is remarkable. I mean, even just you read the basic biography and his implication in kidnappings and, and of pro-democracy demonstrators at the end of the 90s and things like this. I mean, it, I find it especially shocking because, I mean, I'm looking at this from a from perspective from Brazil, where there was also military dictatorship um, over a similar sort of period where there was the military back in power, you know, either directly or or as it was, you know, through Bolsonaro kind of indirectly, but getting a lot of military people in government and, and in and in the st- kind of civilian arms of the state. But no one would have been into them for being cuddly. <laughs> like that would have been a that would have been a several steps too far in terms of trying to um re-ennoble the image of the of the Brazilian military. So I, I find it quite um shocking. But I also I also have this, you know, the images that I have of Indonesia are also like things like from the act of killing, which is to say quite very limited, but you have those images of like the Panchasila youth of, you know, kind of a paramilitary youth group, which are like 3 million strong or something like that. And um, with imagery, which is like very, not just, it's not the kind of, um, you know, old stand-up kind of um, military kind of honor or whatever. Like that's not the image that is conveyed. It's much more aggressive, um, sort of fascistic image that that that's conveyed. And so I don't know enough about Indonesia to really cast too much judgment on it. But looking at it from from afar and just a kind of few kind of images, it's like wow, this is something which is very normalized. It seems uh, the fascist aesthetic is incredibly normalized, um, and that. Um, you know that uh, campaign ad using the Nazi imagery didn't raise too many eyebrows in Indonesia. It was um, internationally where people were were appalled. And um, one of uh, I've got a slide in um, one of my lectures that I give on, uh, on Indonesian history, talking about recent politics. And it's a picture I took when I was um, working at a university in Central Java in Yogyakarta at University Tuskajamada. And it's a vendor in front of um, the Sultan's palace, and he's selling posters. There's a bunch of posters uh, on the side there, and you've got the Beatles, and you've got One Direction, and then you got a poster of Sukarno, uh, the the first president of Indonesia, national nationalist hero, and then you got a poster of Adolf Hitler, and then you got a poster of the Beatles, and you <laughs> right. could go down and and and, and you know, is it One Direction or Hitler? I don't know what I'm going to get today. Okay, I'll, I'll get the Hitler. Um, and very little understanding of the history, but the image, the image of, of strong man in uniform, commanding presence, and the knowledge that Hitler was a strong leader, um, has it, it has this circulation that is is wild to um, people who are um, from other cultures that may have um, a, a different historical memory of that era. Um, and I, you see that this fascist imagery um, in all sorts of places in Indonesia, um, mm. and at, so at the I'll, same I'll time, to... yeah, yeah, and, and it runs counter to um, sort of the uh, what is generally a, a very refined and um, uh, polite uh, uh, popular culture. The Indonesians use the word halus, and halus is sort of uh, aristocratic, kind, gentle, welcoming. It's a, it's a Javanese mm-hmm. value. And really contrast that with uh, Kassar, uh, 
and Kassar is like sort of gruff popular and and politicians, Indonesian politicians are always very, very halus and, and very sort of uh, gentle and di- very diplomatic. At the same time, there's this fascination with these uh, figures of power, totally out of historical context, totally out of mm, historical right. context. And even but who are just you know, convey strength and um, yeah. power and yeah. Yeah, and even you know, so even Sukarno, um, the uh, the left of center, very communist party friendly, uh, first president of Indonesia, um, who had a, an ideology of Nasikom, nationalism, communism, and Islam. He was going to get those three together, and, and that was that was his state ideology. He adopted all sorts of fascist imagery, and there's a um, there's a great anecdote uh, in one of Benedict Anderson's. Uh, works where he talks about uh, being a translator at a cocktail party for diplomats in the 1960s. And Sukarno was was saying, you know, it's good to be a nationalist. You know, look what Hitler did for Germany. You know, he went in there and fed all these Germans who who felt 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 really sad and he made them feel good about themselves. And so I want to I want to do that. And like he Anderson's translating that for these diplomats and they're just appalled at what this guy is saying. This is like oh, right. 62, 63, maybe 64. And then the, you know, the 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 famous book, novel, and film title that we're not we're not supposed to uh, Indonesians aren't supposed to reference because it's such a cliche of the the year of living dangerously. This was a speech Sukarno gave uh, uh, the year before he was overthrown, saying the Indonesian people we're going to live dangerously and we're going to you know it's sort of like Mao with you know bomb bomb the bureaucratic ramparts kind of thing. That's lifted from Mussolini. He plagiarized Mussolini um, and Italian fascism on that that year of living dangerously idea. So there's 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 this current there that's that is across Indonesian politics, and so it, it's what makes this reinvention of Prabowo, who would be the epitome of that strongman. I mean, again, look at the old campaign fo- uh, photos with with him on horseback. The invention of him as cuddly grandpa, um, stroke of genius. But I don't know. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm not in his inner circle. Maybe, maybe he's gotten, gotten more, more good boy. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's sincere. You know, maybe, maybe you know, I'm just being paranoid here because um. Well, I'm, most so I mean, I do want to ask you. Concerned? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I do want to ask you whether this is, um, you know, aesthetic, cultural, or if there's some kind of deeper, truer political reality that that kind of that these images speak to. But before we get on to that, because um, we'll do that in in just a little bit, I did wanted to ask what his, you know, what 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 his rule will be like. Um, I'm just having a look a little bit at what some um, foreign press said. So the the Financial Times suggested might there might be concerns about populism, but by that they just mean some costly campaign pledges. Um, also, possibly his nationalism might put off Chinese investors. Uh, the foreign affairs said that Indonesia's democracy is stronger than a strong man, so Prabowo will find it difficult to to rule as an authoritarian. Um, do you think those takes are are correct? I mean, how, how how do you see it? And also, how strong is he in the legislature? Yeah, yeah. No, the, I mean, the, I mean, some of those takes are across the spectrum there. And um, uh, also, in the intro, you uh, you threw uh, you should throw the Guardian under the bus with the. Uh, the um the winter is coming reference. Yes. I, I, I yes. technically I think the Guardian was quoting um uh, Amnesty International Indonesia. Um, so, oh yeah, no, I'm yeah, they, no they, 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 were, they, they were quoting they, somebody. Yeah, 
They, they, they but, were, but it's still really cringe. So I'm, I, I, it, it's, know, it's, I won't it's miss cringe. an opportunity to kick the Guardian. <laughs> Fair enough, but they, but it was it was a human rights organization. It was either Amnesty International or or um one of the one of the local uh, organizations. Um, well, we don't know, but his track record um and his public statements over decades are openly hostile to uh to democratic institutions. Um, he uh in an interview a number of years ago with um Alan Nairn, he um. He said, "Yeah, maybe, maybe Indonesia needs fascism. Maybe, maybe I should be a fascist. Maybe that is, that is something I'll embrace." And this was this was an interview about ten years ago, um, based on his behavior in 2019. I think there's no reason to think that he's really modified too much. Um, but this process of the president in Indonesia gaining more power and being more centralized. Uh, has been going on in this last term under Jokowi. And Jokowi um, has uh, done a number of things, uh, making it much more easier to um, go after people criticizing uh, the president or other elite politicians, um, uh, restricting human rights. Jokowi um, went back on, uh, he really stabbed the um, uh, the. KPK, the um, anti-corruption organization in the back, he really sort of, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, emasculated it. It's, it's lost a lot of its power. Um, so I think, a, you know, if Propolo does can, does start to centralize power, it this isn't a huge rupture. I think this is continuing a trajectory that has been developing in Jokowi's second term, which um, for many of us who are, I'll admit, I, up until... Up until more recently than I'm comfortable admitting, I was still pretty optimistic about uh, Jokowi uh, being this reformer. Um, and uh, this past uh, past two years have just been the opposite of that. Um, well, so so let's of, let, let's get on to him because because you, you called him uh, Indonesia's Obama, and it's also worth noting that his his son is now the the vice president to 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 Prabowo, right so um there's something right. there's something going on there that's i, I want to what would be the the us equivalent of that it'd be like uh one of one of obama's kids like running uh being like trump's vp or something or uh hunter biden uh, oh maybe that's it the hunter uh trump ticket we could really do something in there right right that would be <laughs> that would be cool that'd be cool that would be that would be that would that would be society of the spectacle right there, um, yeah. Um, well, okay. So so two things going on. You know what? Uh, what has been Jokowi's uh, trajectory, and then what's up with this wild alliance that we we've seen in this election between Jokowi and uh, Prabowo? So I mean, Jokowi, um, his background uh, was that he was the first uh, national politician who was not from this old guard elite. And um, all the other p- leading political figures come out of Suharto era politics and have connections to Suharto's new order, this dictatorship of uh, 32 years that only collapsed in 1998. And Jokowi came from, you know, modest middle class background, a city in central Java. His family um, were furniture sellers. And he became the mayor of this town, uh, Solo, also known as Surakarta in central Java, and um, was a, was a fairly popular mayor and um, then ran for governor of Jakarta. And that's kind of an, a, a curious trajectory because he's, he's a local politician in central Java and then he runs for the governor of the capital city. 
a couple hours away. But for in in the past couple of decades, the thinking was that being governor of Jakarta was a way to move on to the presidency. And he was a fairly effective uh, governor of Jakarta, and he was had he was uh, famous for um, wearing flannel shirts and being a heavy metal fan, and uh, sort of this uncorrupted <laughs> man of the man of the people. And um, he would do these um, on the spot visits, um, where he would just show up in an area where the, there were some social issues and just talk to the average people and just hear the average people. And it's great, you know, it's great photo ops. And then he would, you know motion towards some sort of policy that would help them out. And he went on this incredible political trajectory from mayor of this town of central Java to governor of Jakarta. After one term there, he ran for president of Indonesia and won in 2014 against Prabowo. And it was a real, it was a pretty bitter election. The 2019 election is even more bitter and even more polarizing. Um, and Jokowo is, is, Jokowi uh, presents himself as, um, you know, not corrupted and not part of the old elite. And for much of his, much of his uh, presidency, he, he was, I mean, this is, this is, he is, he's really good on, on not being, not having these corruption scandals uh, up until these past couple of years. Um, Most of his corruption, uh, like the two big corruption scandals were both um, Metallica based, uh, uh, corruption, <laughs> both heavy metal based corruption, where um, he he received a guitar from uh, that had been played by Metallica, and um, uh, as a personal gift, and and the uh, corruption agencies wants to know you can't do that. That's a personal gift, and so he donated it to the people of Jakarta, and they put it into a special park, and that won him even more popularity. And then I think a Swedish diplomat gave him a box set of some. Uh, very rare Metallica albums. Wait, wait, wait till wait till Metallica there. find out that he hasn't been paying for their songs or albums. You know, then be, <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll be a real after. scandal. Well, he got on stage when they played. Uh, he got <laughs> right, on stage right. when they played, and and you know, there, there's a lot to be said about Indonesia uh, heavy metal and politics. Um, I was living in in Central Java when Guns N' Roses played, and they came out to uh, a totally uh, black stage with a spotlight on the guitarist who was uh, playing Indonesia Raya, the Indonesian national anthem. And the audience just went crazy. And I didn't know this happened. The next day, I'm just going to the 7-Eleven and everyone's stopping me like, yeah, America, Guns N' Roses, thank you so much. <laughs> and like hearts and minds through through heavy metal there. But, um, and, and, and Jokowi was a heavy metal fan. Like his big boost came from this local metal band called Slank uh, supporting him, which I had, I had, recently was told it was kind of on a whim that they supported him and that gave him this popular appeal. Anyway, Joey was this uncorruptible figure that was from the old order and then had this really nasty uh, election in 2019 where again, Probowo, you know, started riots. Um, and You know, he was, he was doing a January 6th kind of, kind of thing before, uh, before it was cool. Right. And um, he, uh, Jokowi responded by, bringing Prabowo into his administration and made him minister of defense, which has been a pattern in Indonesian politics. It's, uh, I don't know, a team of rivals kind of thing. <laughs> but um, Jokowi had not done much of this in his first administration, but he did it uh, He did it in 2019. And that gave, um, that, that, that created the opening for this rapprochement between these two. 
And over the course of this administration, the second administration of Jokowi, he and Prabowo have become closer and closer. And um, also it's worth noting that when he made Prabowo Minister of Defense, Prabowo then was able to visit the United States uh, for the first time in I think about 20 years. The U.S. had refused to give him a visa because of uh, Prabowo's human rights record. But when he was Minister of Defense, the Trump administration said, well, we got to let this guy in. Um, and that's, that was his first visit to the U.S. in, in I think, 2020. Um, All right, yeah. He wasn't even allowed to see his son graduate from college in, I think, 2012 in Massachusetts. Um, so, yeah, the, I call Jokowi the Indonesian Obama because there was so much optimism that this outsider would come in and really change things. And especially by the second administration, not much has changed. And indeed, he's increasingly bought into the existing power structure and also acting in a more and more authoritarian way. And so as he gets closer to Prabowo, who's his defense minister, um, and we start to move towards the election, it's clear that Prabowo is going to run again. Um, and there's two other presidential candidates, um, one from Jokowi's party, who's a very nice but totally forgettable guy from central Java, and then um, an, another politician, Anis. And Anis has another one of these very, very quick upward political tra- trajectories, like uh, like Jokowi. Uh, he's uh, American educated. Um, one, of, one of my friends was his professor in, uh, at Northern Illinois University. Um, very sharp um, uh, study, uh, political scientist. Um, and he, uh, he became governor of, um, of Jakarta, but he got to that position by attacking Jokowi's, who had been Jokowi's secondhand man, uh, a, a Chinese Indonesian politician uh, who goes by the name Ahok. And when Jokowi was president, or excuse me, Jokowi was governor of Jakarta, Ahok was his vice governor. And when Jokowi left to run for president and then become president, Ahok became the governor of Jakarta. And here we start to see some identity politics come in. And Anis um, used um, uh, uh, Muslim identity politics, to just as a, a shorthand there. I know, I know that's... Mm. <laughs> we can we can unpack that for hours, right? I don't want everybody coming at me for that, but but basically using uh, Muslim identity politics um, to go after Ahok, who is ethnic Chinese and Christian, and it led to um, there was a, a cell phone video of Ahok giving a, giving a speech where he he was saying saying something about it an Islamic uh, a verse from the Quran that. Um, uh, it was. It was just. It, it wasn't anything that controversial, but that clip was edited in a really amateurish way. I've, I've watched it a zillion times. I don't know how anybody could be convinced that that wasn't edited, and to made it look like he was um, engaging in blasphemy. Um, and that led to this uh, mobilization against Ahok, and um, uh, Anis really rode that to power, and. Um, uh, beat Ahok in the election, and then Ahok was found guilty of blasphemy and spent a couple of years in jail. And this is the end so that, of um, Ahok's political that's career. A, that's a big transgression of, of norms then. Like that would be something that which would just rule you out everywhere um, in Indonesian politics or a conviction of primarily blasphemy. in Java. Or, huh? Yeah. 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 No, that was, yeah. That uh, 
yeah, <laughs> that's that, that was a bit of a career ender there, uh, and 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 spent a, a couple years in jail. And I think that the judge gave him more time in jail than the prosecutors were asking for, and it was, it was really scandalous. Wow. And so An- Anise, this who's now governor of Jakarta, had been using that you and continued to um, to use these popular demonstrations in in Jakarta. Uh, they were huge. I mean, just gigantic demonstrations on on Friday after Friday prayers, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people dressed in white and these these big demonstrations. And um, this was Jokowi's political ally that uh, Anis took down, Ahok. And so, um, uh, Jokowi w- definitely going to make sure that Anis doesn't come to power because uh, Anis is uh, the three presidential candidates were Prabowo. Anis and then um, uh, Ganjar, the um, the uh, the guy from Jokowi's party, and um, Jokowi decided he's going to put his thumb on the scale in favor of Prabowo. He uh, turned his back yeah. on the candidate from his own party, who um, they kind of shot themselves in uh, Jokowi's party, kind of shot themselves in the foot. Um, the The power broker for that party is Megawati Sukarnoputri who in Megawati is the daughter of President Sukarno. She briefly served as president, um, but has receded from electoral politics to be the power broker, right? And last year, she um, uh, uh, had um, Anise, uh, or not Anise, but uh, Gibran um, come out and oppose um, uh, Indonesia hosting, allowing the Israeli soccer team for the FIFA under 20 league come to Indonesia. They said, no, we're not, we're not going to allow the Israeli team to come. And that, um, uh, backfired tremendously and led to, um, Ganjar's, um, uh, uh, approval in the polls tanking because, uh, FIFA responded by saying, okay, you're not going to let a team come. We're not sending Mm. this tournament to Indonesia. And, um, love of soccer was, uh, more important than uh, fanning um, the flames of of anti-Israel uh, political sentiment, right? So she right. kind of tanked. She kind of tanks that candidate, and then um, it looks like looked like Anis was going to be the candidate riding um, this uh, this sort of cultural politics, and so Jokowi puts his thumb on the scale in favor of Prabowo, and going so far as to um, share Jokowi's incredible popularity. Like Jokowi is going to leave office with incredibly high um, approval ratings. Uh, so high that Jokowi uh, a year or so ago was toying with the idea of a third term, which is banned by the constitution. But he, he, he was floating the idea of maybe blowing through, through, through that and taking a third term. Um, but realizing he couldn't, he couldn't get away with that. He struck this alliance with Barboa and um, essentially gives him his oldest son, Jokowi's oldest son, um, uh, Gibran, to uh, run as the vice presidential candidate on Barboa's ticket. So in this incredible yeah. like um, musical chairs, these two enemies suddenly are aligned. And then to make it even more uh, frustrating and, and shady – Jokowi's son was too young to run for president. You have to be 40 years old to run for president. And he was uh, he turned 36 uh, as this was unfolding. 
And so uh, Jokowi um, started a court case and said, well, he's already mayor of, uh, of Solo, this town that Jokowi had been mayor of. And that's enough sort of executive authority to make one qualified for president, right? So it's this very spurious uh, legal argument. And so it goes before the court and the judge rules in favor of um, uh, taking his previous administrative work uh, to make up for the fact that he is literally four years too young. Now, that judge was Jokowi's brother-in-law. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just- it's, the, the, So it's, the, all, it's all very shady. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and this is all happening in the space of a few months. Um, nonetheless, I mean, th- the, this is a nice- the Jokowi effect, you know, raises uh, Proboa's popularity to the uh, through the roof. I and mean, we saw it in the poll. We had really good polling data for this election, really, really good polling data. And- so yesterday he won with like 60% of the vote, which is just shocking. Uh, we, many of us right. thought, okay, he's, you know, he'll get 48, 49, but, uh, there'll be no runoff election. He's, he's the presumed president. I mean, I, it, it's a, that bit just there is a nice illustration, I suppose, of, um, what, uh, our previous guest on in Indonesia told us about the degree to which the oligarchy is still very much in place and controls large areas of the of, of the state. Um, I, I wonder one just one last question on on the election. Was there a central issue that came up um, that was the kind of a pivot of 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 the election, or was it just very personalized? And if if there was an issue, is there some programmatic issue that is going to be taken forward by uh, Proboa? into the presidency. I mean, is there going to be something like to look forward to him making a big international splash or um, building something domestically or trying to be more egalitarian or less so or whatever? I mean, is there something that is to be expected or is this really just sort of managing uh, the the kind of existing trajectory of the Indonesian economy? The latter. The latter. The the debates were, were really quite dull. Um, there was not much policy difference. Uh, it was just essentially arguing who was going to be continuing Jokowi's policies of developmental politics. Um, the one area where Prabowo was making a lot of noise was um, increasing uh, nickel mining. And um, uh, nickel is increasingly important for batteries for ele- electric vehicles, right? Mm. And um, he's he pushing for um, increasing nickel mining, but starting to bring some of the value added work into Indonesia. So processing the nickel, right? So you're less of a a Saudi Arabia type situation, right? Where you're just exporting, get some of that work done there. And, uh, he's, there's been negotiations with, um, with Tesla for a couple of years now to start making the batteries in Indonesia. And that would be huge in terms of doing the value added work in Indonesia. And that's the sort of developmental economic populism. Um, I've been reading that the next generation of batteries are not going to be as dependent upon nickel, so this may not work out as it's as a kind planned. Of bad gamble, yeah. But they're they're trying to you know in, increase the extractive industries, nickel, palm oil, um, you know, gold mines in New Guinea, um, increase the extractive industries, but start to to do some um, uh, again more value added work um, in order to. Uh, build the economy but but right. amongst the candidates there's really not that much of a difference in in, in policies 
And, um, and, and and there's they're signed up. I mean, and and Prabowo signed up to this um, idea of a new capital in Borneo, which I always find, you know, setting up a new capital a fascinating thing, often very problematic and contradictory, and um, riven with various problems. But it is always a mark of kind of modernist ambition. Whether you consider Brasilia um, being built in in the fifties in Brazil, or um, Equatorial Guinea in Africa is building a whole new <laughs> capital. Um, with their oil money deep in the interior. And Indonesia is doing the same. It's kind of leaving Jakarta behind, at least as a capital, and trying to set up this new one in Borneo. I find that story fascinating. I don't know if you have any um, story or insight to share about that, but I, I find it um, kind of it's something that will, I guess, at least keep Indonesia in the headlines in, insofar as it's such a, yeah, it's such an ambitious move. Yeah, it, it's an ambitious move and it, it ties a bunch of things together. I mean, it, it, at the the core of this um, this policy is facing the realities of climate change and the fact that northern Jakarta is literally sinking into the Java Sea um, is partially due to centuries of of building on an old colonial city and and also with climate change and and the air, the the drainage systems have gotten messed up. Have you ever been in Jakarta during a, a rainstorm? Um, I mean, in the space of two three hours whole neighborhoods can find themselves underwater and your wow, section right, of the yeah. city just shut down. Um, I'm, I have some sort of strange uh, masochism because I, I absolutely love Jakarta as a city. Absolutely love it. But the, the traffic jams that you get in there, well, you, you live in Sao Paulo. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 we, we, yeah, it we, is, we don't get whole neighborhoods flooded, but we, we get quite a bit of flooding. I mean, it might not be up to your, yeah. your neck, but, 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 up, but you get the, your you, waist, you you know? the, the famous traffic jams, right? That can occur yeah. at all hours of the day. Um, but uh, so in, in many ways, Jakarta is becoming not a functional urban center. It's, 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 it's falling, falling apart. And so this idea to move the capital to Borneo. Um, which was a bit of a surprise and seems to be moving forward. And um, in the past year or so, a it is it has drawn the eyes of corruption corruption watchdogs, and surprise surprise, there's some deals going on there. Um, I've I've seen various mockups of what the what the new capital will be like. Um, I was last summer I was um, up in um, Makassar, just ac- uh, across the strait from. Um, from Borneo, uh, where the where the capital is going to go in, it's it's a it's a long ways from Java. Um, the it you know the the model is is Brasilia is this administrative center um, that will be at some distance from the economic hub of um, of Jakarta. Um, I, I don't know. We'll we'll see. Um, I I wouldn't if it I wouldn't be entirely surprised if in five years, it just never comes to be. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. But I I wish them the best. <laughs> it, it, it will be a wild restructuring of Indonesia and um, will lead to some development in the north and some e- real economic boom in Kalimantan, uh, which is Indonesian Borneo, um, and also in, um, in the Moluccas and in that northern part of Indonesia, um, which is you know, a stunningly gorgeous place, also very resource rich. Um, Borneo is uh, uh, is the site of incredible deforestation right now, as palm oil plantations are going in, and just I mean, just mm-hmm. absolutely devastating. Um, 
ecological damage, um, which is something I think that the pro bono administration will um, dramatically increase because in addition to mining, um, there's expansion of palm oil plantation is on his agenda. But I don't know that it's, it, it, the whole new capital project could possibly collapse, um, but seems to be moving forward. That's fascinating. Um, maybe something that uh, we at Bunga Cast need to do a dedicated episode on. <laughs> to kind of move down to the to the last bit, I wanted to talk about. Um, as uh, regular listeners to this podcast will know, I mean, there's the concept of the end of history also implies a, a disconnection from the past and, and indeed from historical memory. Um, and that is a global experience. There might be some exceptions to it, but by and large, that has been the experience of the end of the Cold War. What's amazing about Indonesia, um, certainly along the lines of what you were telling me but just before we started recording, is that Indonesia is kind of the end of history well before that, I mean, with the massacres of 65 uh, and, and then six, it's 66 um, and, and continues until today, like history is a non-topic, it's an anti-history country. So um, tell, me what, tell me what an anti-history country is like. Yeah, and, and, and I say this as someone who, you know, as a profession does history of Indonesia and has, has taught history in Indonesia. I taught at uh, Gajamana, which is one of the top three universities in the country. Some absolutely brilliant, brilliant students there. Um, and very, very spotty historical knowledge. And these are amongst these elite students. Um, and for um, the, the common, the, the general population, the, 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 the man and woman on the street, very, very uh, poor command of recent Indonesian history. Um, and that's due to the Suharto era education system, which just either glossed over political developments um, really since World War II um, or presented just a complete new order narrative that was um, deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in this anti-communist um, narrative. And so, I mean, just to, to review, in, in 1965, the popular uh, left-wing um, uh, president, uh, Sukarno, um, um, was was friendly with the Indonesian Communist Party, which is you know famously the the largest communist party outside of uh, the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China at the time. And there was a there was a coup, and it got blamed on the Communist Party. And the Indonesian military used that coup as a pretext to eliminate the Indonesian Communist Party. I mean, half a million to a million. One of the uh, one of the genocidaires claimed it was maybe three million people are killed in the space of about a year, a lot of it by hand. You know, the, the Joshua Oppenheimer films um, have brought that to international attention, right? Um, and then uh, the General Suharto slides into power in this creeping coup. It, he takes about a year to get himself installed, but he's uh, fully in charge and Sukarno is, is moved aside. Um, that story of there was a communist threat and General Suharto stepped in and had to remove it is um, really the one historical fact that everyone knows, and and this idea that the communists were about to take over, and and the fact is that there, there there wasn't a communist takeover, there was no communist army, but the Suharto um, regime for thirty two years 
built this massive propaganda state. Um, and I, I think it's probably one of the most successful propaganda efforts of, of the 20th century. Um, I was as an undergraduate, I was a student of Peter Knez, who wrote uh, uh, "Birth of the Propaganda State" about the Soviet Union in the in the 20s and 30s, and I think is vastly more successful there because um, they they did things like make a four and a half hour documentary, or not documentary, um, uh, a drama about the night of the coup d'état, which presents the communists as as like evil witches. And it's it's really misogynistic, and it has this really graphic, bloody scenes of when the generals are killed. Um, and every year that was shown on national television, and school children were marched down to see it in theaters. I've got friends my age and a little bit younger who, in elementary school and high school, had to go watch this movie every year on the anniversary of the murder of these generals. That was the that was the pretext for the slaughter of the Indonesian Communist Party. And you talk to, you talk to people, and that's the narrative they know. Now, numerous mm. scholars, Indonesian and international scholars, have have shown like that that narrative is is completely false. But it is it is so the Suharto regime was so successful at instilling that narrative that it's really impossible to question that. Like people would look at you like you're from Mars, um, and you 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 have, in every city you have uh, streets named after these six generals that were killed. That was a pretext for this mass murder. You have a major museum. It's called the Museum of the Treachery of the Indonesian Communist Party, which after Suharto yeah. and especially after the, end of the Cold War, and then after Suharto, I kind of thought would close up. That they keep adding on to that museum. <laughs> it's it's getting bigger. So, so I mean, the, so this is a good. This is a question. I, I I wonder. Like, is this an ongoing project of remembering this? false narrative or is it a project of kind of forgetting the past and, and not really having any sense of historical continuity because I, those two things maybe are you know stand against each other i don't know well well i think that when you are faced with this project of um this narrative being crammed down your throat it creates apathy in historical interest, and it it it, do, it doesn't it doesn't create historical thinking, historical engagement, right. um, and and it's you know it's it can be very dangerous, like physically dangerous, to question this uh, the, the new order narrative um, up up to the present. And we there's been these moments where you know things like some of it's international, some of it much of it is 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 organic from Indonesia, where you have artists or intellectuals or, or films like the Joshua Oppenheimer films challenging the Suharto era narrative in the post Suharto era. And there's these moments where, Oh, there's going to be a little light opening and they keep getting uh, crushed and they keep getting slammed down. And um, it's just very dangerous to do this. So screenings of the act of killing will get disrupted by Pamuda Panchasila. Um, you know, Joshua Oppenheimer responded by uh doing a free download as long as you were uh, using a, an IP address in Indonesia. So we distributed oh, the film right, that way. Right. Um, so it's, I, I, I think it can be both. I think it can be both the successful propaganda. Because machine. I mean, one, one, because it, I guess it's not a given that you would necessarily try to, you know, perpetuate this narrative. It's very easy 
as an ongoing thing, like the communists are still a threat, we must clamp down on um, any mention of this because it'd be easy for them to also just, you know, make a break at 1998 and say, yeah, bad things happened back then. Now we're a democracy. Now we're good. Um, so, you know, you can, yes, you can um, be aware of these bad things that were done, but that was back then. That was the, the previous regime. Um, that's, this is, has nothing to do with us, which is what many kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of post-authoritarian then democracy the regimes that become democracies um, sometime around the 1980s and 1990s do. You know, they kind of kick all the bad stuff into the past and, and wash their hands of it. Um, and it's interesting that Indonesia hasn't pursued this path. It's gone, it's pursued a path of sustaining, um, sustaining a kind of very active um, engagement with its history, with, with sustaining a narrative, you know, even if it's a completely um, false one. Well, this has so much to do with the fact that Suharto falls and there is no de-Suhartoization. The bureaucracy that he created survives his fall. The business cronies that benefited under the New Order regime are literally 25 years, some of the same people in power or same families in power. And um, the army, while it has, there's been a bit of a return to the barracks, it hasn't been a complete return to the barracks. Um, they don't have a, a percentage of parliament like they, they used to. But the the people that benefited from the new order, which is complicit uh, not just in the uh, the bloodbath that brought Suharto to power, but also the um, the occupation of uh, Western New Guinea, uh, Irian Jaya, Papua, um, which is ongoing and, and a side of gross human rights abuses, where a place where um, – the, the incoming president served, but also the invasion of East Timor, which um, by any accounts was a, a genocidal occupation by Indonesia from 1975 mm -hmm. to 1998. Something like a third of the population of East Timor was killed in that time period. Wow. Um, I think it's, it, is, it is a loss of life that we haven't seen in the world uh, since the Nazi regime in in like occupation of of Latvia and, and the Baltic countries, I think is where it it comes comes up to. And um, Aceh, the the ongoing civil war in, in Aceh, which is which is has come to an end, but it was it was a decades long civil war um, with uh, gross human rights abuses there. Um, so so many of the the actors who were who carried out the Suharto era policies. Um, who engaged in the repression, who benefited from this because there's a lot of money to be made and owe their careers and their families' career, families' uh, well-being to complicity in the Suharto regime, they, they, that can't be discussed. And um, there's real anxiety amongst the elites that if you probe too deeply into this past, people will want revenge. So the survivors of 65 are getting very, very senior now, and there's very few around, but there's anxiety that their families will want revenge. Mm -hmm. And there's no, there's no no state memorial to the victims of 65, 66, even though Suharto is, is long gone. There's only one place in Bali, and uh, I met with these uh, the folks who run it last summer, uh, Taman 65, uh, Park 65. And it's their private residence, which they've set up as a, a space memorializing their, their father who was killed in, in the anti-communist bloodshed. And they hold public events there. And they're under constant pressure from the authorities, from um, 
civil actors from um, from their neighbors, and it's it's very very difficult to talk about these uh, these abuses uh, in the Suharto era because so, so many people are complicit, and and it, it's a threat to them. It's a threat to the whole to their well being. No, that I mean that's fascinating. Um, it, and fascinating how that can be ongoing. Um, but as you say, I guess the the idea that it that there was Indonesia was fighting wars um, on several different fronts, kind of at its at its borders for a long time, sustained a much more traditional Cold War um, right wing regime attitude, um, where in many other places that kind of lapsed into a much more kind of uh, neoliberal end of history kind of we can forget everything. <laughs> <laughs> nothing really matters um, sort of attitude. Yeah. And in, in those ongoing campaigns and, and these, are, these are wars, I mean, they're, they're not, I mean, it's at the borders, but it's in Indonesian territory. These are, these are domestic, you know, wars. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, most, most international human rights observers would say New Guinea is occupied, but, but, um, but it, the, technically these are all part of the Indonesian nation state. And um, you have uh, major political actors like the incoming president, Prabowo, who served in East Timor, who served in right. uh, in New Guinea, um, who um, has connections to um, to uh, there's there's a number of um, uh, Timorese that worked with the Indonesians. And then when um, uh, East Timor voted for independence, many of them left and came to uh, came to Jakarta, where they worked as Preman, worked as thugs. And Prabowo's got direct connections to some of these. Um, Hercules, this guy Hercules, who's uh, who's just like this terrifying gangster guy. Uh, he lost his eye in the, in the war, and he always wears a black glove. I think he had some damage there, and he used to run um, uh, one of the major gangs in Jakarta down at Tanah Abang. Um, he's like been very open that he pledges his loyalty to uh, to Prabowo, and that they've they've got direct connections there. And this was a, a, a t- as a youth, he was um, orphaned when the Indonesian army killed his family, and Indonesian officers basically adopted him. This sort of battlefield adoption. So this is these connections to these ongoing wars that are really brutal. I mean, really, really brutal, and it builds a real esprit de corps amongst the officers. Uh, and and the rank and file soldiers. Um, for example, oh, and and and, and the, one of the major groups in these military efforts is Kopassus, which is the Indonesian Special Forces, of which Probowo headed. He was the head of the Special Forces, and and yeah, right, right. Um, they're they're really the the elite of the New Order era, and they continue to be the elite of the Indonesian military. And when I was living in um, in uh, Yogyakarta in Central Java uh, in 2013. Um, there was a bar fight one night. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. <laughs> it was a it was a bar. It was like by the airport. Everyone in there, but it was a, I think it was adjacent to a hotel. It was called Hugo's, and a bar fight broke out. Um, and it was so we I think it was over a drug deal, and it was a bar fight between police officers and members of Kapasus, and um, the um, the uh, a member of Kapasus was was killed by an off duty police officer. And the um, the guy who uh, the suspect was was arrested. He was put in jail, and um, he was put in jail. Uh, he was being held for a couple of days outside of the city of Jakarta in this jail that I'd ride my motorcycle past every now and then. Very spooky place. And a couple of days into his detention, 
a bunch of black SUVs pull up with guys in, in full Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger style commando outfits with communication systems. They use explosives, blow open the door of the, of the jail and go through and find the suspect and murder them in the cell and then leave. Wow. And, you know, this is, this is the town I'm living in. This is a mile or two from where I live. Everyone's appalled. Uh, everyone knows it was Kapasus. It was the special forces guys. Uh, finally, the head of the military steps forward and says, all right, everybody, everybody knows this was, uh, the special forces did this. Um, you know, we've identified who they are. We we've, you know, we've detained them. Um, the situation was that the guy that was killed in the bar fight was their commanding officer in operations. And they had a lot of loyalty and that's something that we really praise in the Indonesian army. So we're going to just handle this ourselves and there's nothing to see here. Don't worry about it. Right, right. So they they can engage engage in these extrajudicial killings against the police force, and there's this ongoing. This is a whole not. This could be a whole nother podcast, but there's an ongoing history of tension between the Indonesian police force and the Indonesian army, because during the Suharto era, the army assumed so many functions in society that the police really didn't do much, and as part of the return to the barracks yeah. under uh, democratization. The TNI, the army is supposed to pull back, but hasn't really been pulling back. And there's in, there's a number of incidents over the years like this that happened in Yogyakarta with this prison raid or with army and police um, units fighting each other and like, like using rocket propelled grenades to blow up a police station because uh, they're in a dispute over black market petroleum sales. Um, wow. That's fascinating. I need to ask you, you know, for, for the outro to this episode for some Indonesian heavy metal, um, because I think that would be like really fitting there to, to illustrate what you were just talking about. <laughs> but Mike, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you.